Sadly, for many of the missing persons cases that we cover on this channel, it seems like there's never an end in sight. It's so rare that we get answers for the families left behind, but it is not impossible. Stories of loved ones returning do exist. Sometimes it's for the better, but for others, it's not always easier when they finally come home. In today's video, we'll be exploring three cases of people who went missing and later reappeared. Stephen Kubaki. Stephen Kubaki has one of the most bizarre cases of someone who went missing and later reappeared. In 1978, Stephen was 23 years old and studying German at a small, private Christian university. At the time he went missing, he was not known to be upset, depressed, or stressed with anything going on in his life. He was a smart, capable young man who had everything going for him including a job with a newspaper lined up after he graduated. He had no complications in his love life, and reportedly, his father had intentions of signing his house over to his son. On February 20th, 1978, Stephen went missing from an area in Michigan known as the Lake Michigan Triangle. The triangle has been associated with various peculiar events over the years, beginning in 1891. And for a short time, it was thought that Stephen's case was linked with this mystery. Stephen had plans to go skiing that afternoon, but he never made it back home. A day after he was due to return, his family notified authorities that the young man was missing. Search teams were swiftly dispatched, and authorities wasted no time in launching an investigation. Stephen's skis and poles were located on the shore of Lake Michigan and footprints were found on the ice leading towards the lake. A group of snowboarders uncovered his backpack, which contained a dentist bill, allowing them to identify to whom it belonged. During this search for the 23-year-old, a rescue crew flew over the area. The footprints they spotted appeared to stop at the edge of the ice, which was unbroken. A further search of the area turned up no more clues. There was no sign of Stephen for over a year. It was assumed by law enforcement that the young man had fallen and drowned in the lake. A month after he went missing, in March of 1978, a family friend was given names and numbers by an unidentified caller to contact in connection with the disappearance, but the numbers were all disconnected. Stephen's mother later found out that Stephen had called from one of the numbers before, six months prior but she didn't know who or where the number belonged to. While police traced the previous number, they were never publicly named, and their name never came up when the police files were later looked over by journalists, suggesting that perhaps this person was ultimately ruled out of investigation. Detectives working the case even went so far as to send Stephen's dental records to Chicago to see if the 23-year-old had become a victim of the serial killer, John Wayne Gacy. 
15 months after Stephen's disappearance, on May 5th, 1979, he appeared at his father's door. His father, a 53-year-old retired factory worker, was overjoyed that his son had finally come home, but naturally he was confused. However, Stephen appeared even more confused when he found out that he had been missing for so long. According to his own accounts, the young man had woken up in Pittsfield, 700 miles from Michigan and 40 miles from his father's home. He was lying in a meadow, and when he woke, he was wearing clothing that did not belong to him. Next to him, Stephen had found a small satchel. There were maps inside that he didn't recognize as being his. He also found hitchhiking signs that suggested he'd been to Utah, Chicago, San Francisco, and Sacramento. There was $40 in cash and a new pair of glasses. When asked about what happened, Stephen suggested that perhaps he had suffered a combination of exhaustion and a loss of body heat like mountain climbers do. He knew this from experience as he'd previously climbed mountains in Europe. This combination can result in a temporary loss of memory. He also added that he had vague feelings and a new pair of running shoes, saying, quote, I feel like I've done a lot of running. I have also a marathon t-shirt from Wisconsin. I don't know how I got it. Stephen's name was not registered as being entered into the marathon that occurred in Wisconsin of that year, 1978. Upon his return, reporters repeatedly asked Stephen if he would speak to a professional, but he told them he didn't need to because he didn't have any psychological problems and had nothing to say about the 15 months that he was missing. Sometime after 1983, Stephen gained a master's degree in linguistics and a PhD in clinical psychology. He did not take the newspaper job he'd originally had lined up and had received the bachelor's degree in absentia from Hope College the year he went missing. Overall, Stephen Kubaki is a very accomplished individual, but still will not elaborate on the 15 months he went missing. Even his ex-wife refused to give newspapers any information that she might have. Without answers, of course, people speculate. Many have wondered whether Stephen suffered from a fugue state, which is a disassociative disorder and a rare psychiatric disorder characterized by reversible amnesia for personal identity, including things like memories and characteristics of individuality. It can last days, months, or even longer. Stephen was described by those who knew him as, quote, a little more free-spirited than the average student, which has led other online sleuths to speculate that Stephen left of his own volition, with some suggesting he ended up in a cult, embarrassed by where he'd been, or perhaps not wishing to stir up trouble with the group he'd escaped from. Others have suggested that he simply wanted a break, and felt like the only way he could go about it was to drop off the map entirely. Whatever happened to Stephen Kubaki for those lost 15 months, it seems that we will simply never know. William Bates William Horatio Bates was born December 23rd, 1860, in Newark, New Jersey. He graduated from Cornell University in 1881 and received his medical degree from Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons in 1885. He was frequently consulted in unusual cases, although he specialized in eye care. 
William was renowned in his field for his approach to correcting vision disorders, which he based on psychological principles unusual for the time. That said, just because he was renowned did not mean that he was revered by his fellow professionals, but we will touch on this later. Just hours before William went missing, on August 30th, 1902, he wrote a hurried letter to his wife, Ada, who was out of town visiting her mother. The letter explained that he had been called out of town for work and that he would write her the details later. He also mentioned being excited about the money he had earned from this, which is often seen as an odd detail, considering the 42-year-old was a wealthy and influential man anyway. However, William did not write to his wife later, as promised. He didn't come home either, and in his original letter, he had never stated where he was going. After several days, Ada began to ask her friends and family, who spanned across the US and Europe, whether they'd seen or heard from her husband. William was a prominent figure amongst the Masons, and so Ada enlisted the help from the Masonic Society to locate her husband. His picture was widely circulated. Eventually, a letter arrived from the United Kingdom. A man fitting William's description was found working as a medical assistant at Charing Cross Hospital in London. He had initially been admitted as a patient and was said to have looked haggard, thin, and his eyes were deeply sunken. William later admitted that he recalled starving at various points in the six weeks prior, despite his enormous wealth. Ada boarded the next boat for England, but when she arrived, she was devastated to find that William didn't recognize her. He had no recollection of his life before London. He was, however, coaxed into spending some time with her, and as the days wore on, he began to vaguely remember that he'd been called away to board a ship and perform surgery. Ada had every intention of staying in London with him until he recovered, but two days later, William left the hotel and she never saw him again. She continued to search for him, never losing hope, but died before she could locate her husband in 1907. When William was found again, it was in Grand Forks, North Dakota. In 1910, another doctor and good friend of William's passed through, and at some point bumped into and recognized him. The now 50-year-old had set up a small practice in the town, but his friend managed to persuade him to return to New York, where the two friends set up their own practice together. William never recovered his memories. He went on to serve as an attending physician at Harlem Hospital, and eventually he married again. In 1917, he debuted the Bates System of Exercises in a magazine run by a quote, notorious health quack. The article went down well and boosted magazine subscriptions. In 1920, he published a book made up of bizarre misinformation and exaggeration. His new cure-all concepts were at odds with everything he had been taught and learned in the last several decades of his practice. His new methods saw him revered by the public, but put him at odds with his colleagues. William Bates died on July 10th, 1931, aged 70, and it's unknown what exactly caused his loss of memory. His New York Times obituary said that he suffered a strange form of aphasia, but this is a disorder that primarily limits one's communication abilities, rather than wiping out one's entire memory. Some have speculated that he suffered from retrograde amnesia, while others have wondered if he was the victim of a disassociative fugue, which occurs in roughly 0.2% of the population. 
Many others, however, have suggested that he perhaps walked away from his old life of his own volition. Perhaps he was in debt or grew tired of his life and marriage. Whatever the explanation, the life and story of William Bates is one of the most bizarre and curious cases of the late 19th century. John Darwin John Darwin was born August 14th, 1950, in Hartlepool, County Durham. He married Anne Stevenson in December of 1973. After their wedding, John went on to teach maths and science at a local school for eight years, before switching to a job at Barclays and then getting employment as a prison officer. Anne worked as a receptionist at a doctor's office, and the couple also had a joint business where they rented out bedsits in the County Durham area. However, things for the couple took a turn for the worse in 2000, when they ran into debt after purchasing two houses. These purchases racked up tens of thousands of pounds in debt. John was last seen paddling out to sea in his kayak on March 21st, 2002, at a small seaside resort in the borough of Hartlepool. After he failed to turn up to work that day, a missing persons report was filed for him, and a large-scale sea search was launched for the missing 52-year-old. 62 miles of coastline was searched, but turned up no sign of John, but for his double-ended paddle. The next day, on March 22nd, his kayak was retrieved. The sea had been unusually calm over the last day, leaving rescuers puzzled as to how he could possibly have gotten into trouble. But John had not fallen victim to the sea. In fact, during the first few years that he was missing, he lived next to the family home in one of the bedsits. In February 2003, he secretly moved back in with his wife. While Anne had been publicly grieving for her lost husband, she had been in on John's plan the entire time. The couple had planned to fake John's death so that they could collect on his life insurance policy and thus they could pay off their debts and still have money left to spend. The couple's two sons were adults and living alone, so John and Anne weren't worried about getting caught. A death certificate for John was issued in 2003, listing his date of death as March 21st, 2002. This allowed Anne to collect on her husband's life insurance policy. Reportedly, £25,000 was paid out, as well as a much larger sum that paid off the couple's £130,000 mortgage. Meanwhile, at some point in 2003, one of the tenants of the bedsit saw John, but said he didn't tell police because he, quote, didn't want to get involved. In 2004, Anne and John considered moving abroad and had their sights set on Cyprus. They visited in November of that year to look at a property. John had applied for a passport under a false name, John Jones, but used his real address. He later went abroad again to look at buying a 45,000 pound boat at some point that year. In 2006, the couple began to consider buying a property in Panama rather than Cyprus. They flew to the country in July and were photographed by a Panamanian property agent. This photo was posted online, though it was not discovered for quite some time. The following year, in March 2007, Anne and John formed Jaguar Properties and bought a two-bedroom apartment in El Dorado for £50,000. Proceeds for this came from the sale of the bedsit they had next to their home in the UK. 
A month later, Anne returned alone to England to sell the family home, and in May, they bought a £200,000 tropical estate near the Panama Canal with the intention of building a hotel. Police launched an investigation into Anne and her husband's death in September of 2007, when a colleague overheard a phone call between the couple. A month later, the family home sold for £295,000 and Anne left for Panama. However, a change in Panama's visa laws caused John to email his wife on June 14th, 2007. Passports and IDs now had to be verified by UK police in order for British citizens to get Panama investors visas. John was aware that under that much scrutiny, his false identity would never hold up. So instead, he hatched a plan to turn himself in while faking amnesia. On December 1st, 2007, John walked into West End Central Police Station in London, claiming to have no memory of the last five years. When Anne was told this news, she acted as though she was shocked, but full of joy to be finally reunited with her long lost husband. However, police were already suspicious of the pair. Given Anne's frequent trips abroad, the transfer of large sums of money, and the selling of the family home. Then, the Daily Mirror published the image of the couple when they were in Panama in 2006, and the entire story began to unravel in the eyes of the public, with John being dubbed as the Canoe Man by the British media. Anne confirmed that the photo was of her and her supposedly dead husband, and John was arrested while visiting one of his sons. More damning evidence surfaced when police found the passport of John Jones, and that John had made several trips abroad while using this false passport. Prior to the story unfolding, John's sons had been ecstatic to find their father alive, but after the scam came to light, they expressed their disapproval and publicly announced that they wished to have no further contact with either of their parents. In 2008, Anne and John Darwin were convicted of fraud. John faced additional charges relating to his fake passport, in the end, Anne was sentenced to six years and six months, while John was sentenced to six years and three months. Both appealed these sentences, and both were rejected. The couple were released on probation in 2011, and all their properties and assets were seized so they could repay what they owed. Following their release from prison, Anne and John divorced. Reportedly, John had written to another woman while they were in jail, boasting of his, quote, high sex drive, and claiming that he was leaving his wife. Upon hearing this, Anne severed ties with her husband. In February 2015, John, 64 years old, married a Filipino woman in her 30s. That same year, Anne was known to be working with the RSPCA, living a quiet, honest life. She has since repaired her relationship with her two sons, though it is unclear as to whether the pair ever forgave their father for faking his own death. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts, theories, and speculations. And remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're looking for more cold case content, please consider checking out the Cold Case Detective podcast, which you will find linked down below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.